On this episode of the Power Podcast, I'm joined by Charlie Ebinger, non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. Charlie's going to be part of a panel titled, What is Coal's Future? The panel will be at the Jackson Hole Center for Global Affairs Forum, titled uh, Climate Solutions, Coal Communities, and Economic Diversification, which is being held in Jackson, Wyoming, November 8th and 9th, 2018. Charlie, thanks for joining me. Can you tell a little bit about the Atlantic Council and what you guys are involved in? Absolutely, Aaron. Um, the Atlantic Council is an organization going back nearly 50 years, uh, originally set up to deal with issues of transatlantic relations uh, with our European allies, but anymore uh, is involved in pretty much all aspects of foreign and domestic policy, uh, strong emphasis on energy, environment, healthcare, national defense, uh, has about 300 employees uh, in Washington, and uh, a lot of people that work there are, are retired, uh, high-level people who have served in uh, government or the private sector, foundations, but uh, with very diverse uh, public policy uh, interests. So at the conference or at the forum, you're going to be in a panel uh, with, I guess, three other uh, panelists and a moderator, and the title is, What is Coal's Future?, so what, uh, what's your take? What is the future of coal? Well, I think you have to separate that issue in, in the two parts. Uh, uh, one is what is the potential future in the United States, and the other is, uh, uh, is the trend we see in the United States with coal, at least at this point in time, uh, dropping precipitously as part of our electricity demand. Other countries continue to see very robust in coal demand. And I think a lot of times in this country, the environmental community, particularly not to cast aspersions against any individual group, but a lot of people kind of, because coal is uh, having a difficult time in the United States, kind of think, well, because of climate change, uh, that's going to happen everywhere in the world. And the reality is, if we look at countries in South and Southeast Asia, uh, I'm talking about places like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, moving farther, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, coal demand is very robust, in some cases growing 5 or 6% a year. And the reason for that is uh, a lot of people forget this who haven't looked at international energy issues, is that uh, you know we have a billion people in the world that still do not have access to a light bulb, and another billion and a half people that uh, have intermittent uh, electricity uh, that's highly unreliable. And when countries have large coal reserves uh, to tell their governments, to tell their populations, uh, well, we can't develop any more coal because of concerns about global climate change, uh, it's a hard political uh, statement to sell to people. Uh, you know, would you rather worry about climate change and you're poor and don't have a light bulb, or would you rather have a light bulb or two? And that's what I think a lot of people miss. There's just this tremendous potential for coal to uh, continue to grow, and that's largely because in most parts of the world, the things that compete against coal, like liquefied, imported liquefied natural gas, for example, or even domestic natural gas, remains for the most part uh, more expensive than coal. It employs, this is another factor I don't think enough people look at, coal globally employs literally hundreds of thousands of people in countries like India, you know, to... Uh, to really have the government to make a concerted policy saying we've got to break away from producing our dirty domestic coal, you're talking about, you know, politically, political dynamite by throwing uh, thousands of workers uh, out of work. So uh, I think 
long-winded answer to your question, but I think coal is doing well globally. It certainly is going to continue to be in direct competition with renewables, energy efficiency, and probably over time may come down even in the international market. It's the domestic market where we have the big problem because of coal, of course, uh, uh, with uh, some more stringent environmental regulations, uh, with the cheap availability of natural gas in far greater quantities than anyone a few years ago had anticipated, it's very difficult for uh, uh, for coal to uh, uh, to compete, and particularly difficult if any utility executive uh, wanted to propose building a major new coal plant. It would be a, a hard fight uh, through the regulatory process. Yeah. And I guess a lot of people, you know, when you talk about the growth of coal in other parts of the world, India, China, and these places, it makes them, um, like the people in the coal industry in the U.S. think, well, why do we need to bother? Because with them growing so much, we are not even making a dent in the uh, carbon footprint when all these other countries are still growing. So... To the environmentalists out there, how would you, what would you say to them? Does it matter if we shut down every coal plant in America? Does it have any effect? Well, I think it. I think where it has a, a deep effect is if the United States uh, is going to really help combat global warming uh, uh, on an international scale. If we abandon all efforts to. Uh, prove that uh, carbon capture and sequestration technology is not either technically or economically viable. That would be a, a real loss to, to the world because we, with our technological know-how, if anyone can help do this, uh, it's the United States. And if we can do it, we would be able to have a massive new industry for exports to assist other com- countries that don't have the technology to get their own coal emissions and fossil fuel emissions uh, into check. And I think that's that's where the real nexus comes, whether you believe we really can prove that this technology is, is sound and, and viable or whether you just want to say, well, uh, we can't burn coal in any case because it's too dangerous. And that that is really the, the crux of, I think, what the political dilemma is in our country. We, we just have a lot of people that don't think clean coal is feasible and yet we've got a lot of industries, uh, uh, including my colleague uh, from Peabody Coal uh, on my panel, the Jackson Hole Conference, who I think makes a very compelling case that uh, while there are steep challenges, uh, we've got to get on with the job. So your focus would be that we need to find ways to do uh, a better job of expanding carbon capture and some of these other technologies that would... Bring the emissions down, basically, or capture some of that, uh, the carbon. Right. Yeah. And we shouldn't look at it just, the point I was trying to make, we shouldn't look at it just in isolation of what we can do in the United States, although that's clearly critical, and for domestic coal companies, it is the crux of their future. But to realize uh, uh, there's a foreign policy dimension to this, and we can, if we can be a real leader in proving this technology and then getting it disseminated, around the globe will not only help with global emissions, but will provide uh, export jobs and uh, export opportunities for people who are currently in a very depressed uh, uh, sector. 
And can you point to anybody out there or any companies or other perhaps researchers who are doing a good job and making progress in this uh, avenue or in this realm? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I think our, some of our leading uh, electricity vendors, I mean, in concert with Japanese partners, you see companies like uh, uh, GE and Westinghouse and others uh, out there. Uh, we also shouldn't just think of carbon capture and sequestration as something for the power sector. There are great uh, need uh, in the industrial sector, too, to stop emissions uh, uh, not only of coal, but other fossil fuels and industrial processes. Uh, some of our national laboratories are actively engaged in in good research uh, uh, out at Lawrence Livermore and Los Alamos and the Idaho National Lab uh, are all doing things. You know, the problem is it's, it's such a massive challenge and, uh, and a very expensive challenge, at least at this point in time, unless we're fortunate to find some technological breakthrough that dramatically lowers the cost. Yeah, I mean, I think would be, un- I, I don't want to be unfair to uh, suggesting it isn't a problem. Uh, uh, I think, you know, we've, we've got to, uh, uh, we've got to find a way to, uh, to prove that we can do this. Uh, maybe it's because my dad was on the Manhattan Project, and I look at what they did when, with far less knowledge when they embarked uh, to develop an atomic bomb, but it shows if you put the resources, maybe you can get the breakthrough. But there are a lot of people that simply, I, I have to be the first to admit, don't believe that's possible. Recently, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, issued a report uh, that said we had about 12 years or until 2030 to reverse global warming. Do you subscribe to any of that rhetoric? I don't subscribe to that, uh, while at the same time being a staunch uh, believer in, uh, in, in that climate change is occurring and that we need to do something. I don't believe that we can get to 2030 by closing all the coal plants. And, of course, we've got our nuclear plants under assault, too, people forget that our existing nuclear fleet uh, constitutes uh, about 60% of all our carbon-free generated electricity, all our carbon-generated free electricity. Uh, And if we close the nuclear plants and close the coal plants, you're putting a lot of eggs in the basket that for renewables to be able to do that by 2030, I think we'd have to have such breakthroughs in large-scale battery storage so that our so that our solar and wind plants, uh, you know, c- could store energy when the sun isn't shining and the wind's not blowing, but we're a f- uh, but we're pretty far away, I think, from having commercially commercial scale, large scale battery storage that would allow us to close down all our coal plants. Now I'm kind of getting off topic here because the focus was on on coal, but you had mentioned before we got on the uh, call here that that you went to a small modular reactor briefing recently. What what do you think the the future is for for nuclear and small modular reactors in in general? I think it's under a great challenge, but there are uh, there are companies that are working on and we're talking anything from you know, 40 to 60 megawatts, unlike our historic nuclear plants of 900 or 1200 megawatts. So these plants, if we can uh, uh, prove that we can disseminate them fast enough and and in a profitable manner, uh, 
could be very could be very useful not only in smaller communities in the United States, but they could be very useful overseas where power markets aren't big enough to ever take a 900 or 1200 megawatt reactor. I think it's just prudent to continue R&D, especially at the national laboratories, uh, to try, try to prove this. But uh, there again, just like the coal industry, the nuclear industry probably has even worse uh, uh, public acceptance of a lot of people. You mention anything nuclear, and uh, you know you're a pariah. Coming out of our conference, I think the consensus was that we needed to do a lot better job on public relations about what small-scale modular reactors can do. And we need major reforms at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the regulatory oversight arm of the nuclear industry, because right now they are severely constrained in looking at new, being able to evaluate new nuclear designs. Uh, and that is a big, that causes a huge gap in the timing to prove these technologies. And unless we have serious NRC reform, I think it's going to be a, a major bottleneck for the future of the modular industry. Is there a particular design that you think holds a lot of promise? I know I've, uh, New Scale has a design out there. Terrestrial Energy has has a design. There's others. Uh, anything in particular that catches your attention? No, we talked. We actually talked about all, uh, four or five of these uh, uh, technologies. Nobody, I think, at the at our meeting uh, concluded that one was necessary more necessary than the other. Some of them still have. Uh, nuclear proliferation concerns uh, that are worse than others. Some some uh, with passive safety systems take that concern largely away. But again, uh, uh, we need to get these things at least approved for the design phase so we can iron out what the problems are and figure out which ones are not only the cheapest, but which ones are the safest to operate in the future. And do you think they can be built uh, more timely? Uh, we've seen so many. Oh, that's the biggest. Runs. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, I think most people believe that. I mean, anymore, it would even if you were trying to build a reactor today, you're probably talking twelve to fourteen years. I think most people believe uh, once we got a couple designs accepted and and got a series of orders, we could probably build these in something like four to five years. Hmm. Yeah, that would be a, a big change for the nuclear industry. Big change. It may be the only thing that saves the nuclear industry domestically. There's still a lot of interest in big reactors elsewhere in the world, but not here. Well, thanks, Charlie, for uh, taking the time to talk with me. Is there anything else that maybe I haven't uh, mentioned or covered well, that you'd like well, to Well, I'd just about? like to say the reason uh, the reason the Global Center in, uh, in Jackson Hole is holding this conference is, of course, Wyoming is the largest coal-producing state in the country. It's, uh, of course, been hurt hard by the fall-off in, in interest in, in coal. They've been in the forefront of uh, having an ongoing working group for several years with the Chinese in Shaanxi province in China and with exchanges between uh, key officials in Wyoming and key officials in China. So this uh, this is really designed to, to try to say... Uh, you know, coal can be an important part in the nation's future energy mix, and particularly in Wyoming's future energy mix. Uh, while wind power is going gangbusters in in Wyoming, uh, you know, the problem is as a large state, you're talking about long-distance transmission lines to get the wind to any load centers, and there aren't that many large load centers to begin with. But it's really to, it's really to call attention not only to 
the future of coal in Wyoming, but also uh, uh, with Powder River Basin coal uh, among the cleanest in the world, uh, saying, you know, if we can end some of the bottlenecks on new export facilities in the Northwest and uh, and get approval to move more Powder Basin River coal into the international market, even if the coal only replaces, say, dirty Chinese coal or dirty Indian coal, is still as a win for climate change uh, because we'd be burning a cleaner coal than a dirtier coal. But a lot of people simply, you know, obviously don't want those export facilities built for a variety of reasons, or they don't want the big trains. I can understand the concerns, big trains coming through uh, western towns with 100 to 150 railroad cars can be very disruptive. But if one can step back and move a little bit away from parochial concerns, look to not only national concerns but international concerns, I think the continued uh, entry of Powder River Basin coal into the market is a plus for everybody. With that, uh, I again... Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thank you, and I appreciate you uh, getting together with me. And with that, this episode of the Power Podcast has come to an end. I'd like to thank Charlie for joining me and uh, remind listeners that the Jackson Hole Center for Global Affairs will be sponsoring a forum, Global Forum on Climate Solutions, Coal Communities, and Economic Diversification on November 8th and 9th, 2018. You can learn more at jhcga.org. That's jhcga.org. Watch for the next Power Podcast coming soon.